This episode includes references to sexual assault and may not be suitable for some listeners. Sometimes she would take me because she would like pick a servant for the day. And if she wanted me to watch Max in the car, I could be of use to her. That's Maria Farmer. She's talking about her old boss, Ghislaine Maxwell, and Ghislaine's Yorkshire Terrier, Max. Maria worked for Ghislaine and Jeffrey Epstein when she lived in New York in the 90s. She reported to work at Epstein's mansion at 9 East 71st Street. Once there, she sat behind a desk located at the end of a long cavernous hallway and signed people in as they arrived at the house. From the desk, Maria watched the same odd routine unfold. Always at the same time, around 3 p.m., Ghislaine materialized, on edge, impeccably dressed, and often accompanied by Max. Ghislaine needed help, she'd tell Maria. Ghislaine needed models. Maria could hear school bells from neighboring prep schools as classes ended for the day. It was always around that time that Ghislaine started to get anxious. Before she was leaving the house, she would get like all hysterical and go, I, I need to get the new Biles. And she'd be like, new Biles. Ghislaine didn't do this alone. Sometimes her friends joined her on the expedition or she told Maria to come along to watch the dog. Ghislaine told Maria or her friends that she was looking for models to audition. On these scouting trips, Maria and Ghislaine circled around the East 70s, Ghislaine peering through the tinted pane of glass at the schoolgirls in uniform. If she saw one she liked, she ordered the driver to pull over. Ghislaine would say, you know, oh, I've got to get a model. Got to get a Victoria's Secret model. But I was dumb enough to believe it. I believed it until I didn't. I'm Tara Palmieri, and this is Broken Seeking Justice. This season, our team has spoken to dozens of survivors of Jeffrey Epstein's abuse. This week, you'll be hearing from my colleague, Emily Saul, who covered New York City courts for years and has been reporting for us all season. She took a closer look at the allegations against Ghislaine Maxwell, the so-called lady of the house. Here's Emily. Most of the women we've talked to for this series have told us the same thing. They're still playing a waiting game. They thought that after Epstein's public outing, law enforcement would move quickly, arresting those who have been so consistently implicated in Epstein's crimes. But instead, nearly a year passed after Epstein's death with no major developments. Until... Uh, We have about five minutes to go. As I said, please respect the uh, social distancing rules. Give Audrey your space. July 2nd. Today we announce charges against Ghislaine Maxwell for helping Jeffrey Epstein sexually exploit and abuse multiple minor girls from the period of 1994 through 1997. I was there to hear the announcement, even while New York was shut down in the middle of a pandemic. This was big enough news that the U.S. Attorney's Office held a press conference in downtown Manhattan an in-person presser. It was the first time I'd left home since early March. Maxwell's presence as an adult woman helped put the victims at ease. As Maxwell and Epstein intended, this grooming process left the minor victims susceptible 
to sexual abuse. This was a huge deal. More than anyone else alive, Ghislaine Maxwell is the key to unraveling Epstein's scheme. She knows so many of its secrets, and she was there from the very beginning. Prosecutors even called her case the prequel to Jeffrey Epstein's. Before Ghislaine, Epstein attacked individual girls on a much smaller scale. But with Ghislaine, at the height of his operation, he allegedly molested as many as three girls a day. She's not only charged with enabling the assaults. Some accusers say she also participated in them. But to understand why prosecutors believe Ghislaine was so integral to this abusive operation, we have to rewind to another scandal, the first scandal she managed to outrun. All of the things that seem to be her trademarks now, reinventing herself, uprooting her life to avoid any fallout, not saying a word about what she knows, she honed in 1991, in the wake of another unexpected death, her father's. Millionaire newspaper publisher Robert Maxwell is dead. He disappeared overboard from his private yacht early this morning while cruising off the Canary Islands. Robert Maxwell was dead for almost 12 hours before an Air Force pilot found his waterlogged body. The crew of his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, didn't realize until midday that the tyrannical media magnate had disappeared into the Atlantic Ocean. His wife Betty, son Philip, and youngest daughter Ghislaine flew to the Canary Islands. The press followed close behind. Journalists descended on the vessel, out for scoops on the mysterious death of the powerful publisher of the New York Daily News and the UK's Daily Mirror. One photo shows Ghislaine, then 29 years old, standing next to a railing clutching a sheet of paper. She's wearing a red plaid skirt suit, looking remarkably composed in her grief. Only her dark bangs appear out of place, blowing in the wind. But once inside the yacht's cabin, reports from the time indicate Ghislaine's calm demeanor changed. She swept through her father's quarters, gathering documents from cabinets and desks, dumping everything on the floor. One reporter who witnessed the scene wrote that she then ordered the crew to immediately shred everything on the ground. Why? Why, following the news of a parent's death, would the first move be to destroy evidence of their life? Ghislaine, by the way, immediately denied ever having instructed the crew to shred anything. Details quickly emerged. While alive, Robert Maxwell had raided some 460 million pounds from employees' pensions. More than 30,000 people lost their retirement. Just like that. Mirror Group newspapers has just said that significant assets of their pension fund had been lent or transferred to private companies controlled by Robert Maxwell, apparently without due authority. The news rocked Britain. Despite his well-known ruthlessness, Maxwell had been viewed by his own employees as a bold and talented businessman. In videos made for his staff, he sounds authoritative, even trustworthy. Here's a clip from 1988. As chairman of the Maxwell Group of Companies Pension Funds, I'm addressing you today for the purpose of persuading you that it is in your and your family's best interest to remain a member of whichever pension scheme you are a member of in our group. And yet, at the time of his death, Maxwell's web of companies owed over $4 billion to 43 different banks. 
Maxwell managed the massive fraud by illegally transferring shares from his public companies into his private companies, allowing him to secure loans to prop up his failing ventures and turn public funds into private wealth. Crisscrossing the world in his Gulfstream jet, Maxwell styled himself as an emperor, spending money he could not afford. He didn't do it alone. Prosecutors claimed he did it with help. His family, bankers, tax advisors, lawyers, people on his staff, who were all paid handsomely to do whatever was necessary to keep his empire afloat. By one account, one of those minions was his ninth child. In one of his biographies of Robert Maxwell, journalist Tom Bauer describes one maneuver Ghislaine helped her father pull off. Exactly one year before her father's death, Ghislaine glided off the supersonic Concorde at JFK and headed toward a waiting limousine. She'd carried an envelope across the ocean. Inside were nine share certificates from one of her father's companies, Berlitz International. The limo ushered Ghislaine and the envelope to a swanky Park Avenue office, where she handed the publicly owned shares to one of her father's lawyers. Those shares she carried were then laundered, reissued to one of her father's private companies. She'd just set off a series of events that would deposit huge sums of money into her father's pocket. Maybe Ghislaine didn't know that she was helping with her father's fraud, but If Bauer's account is true, she had. This is how Robert Maxwell ran his companies in the last years of his life. Shuffling money around between his private and public holdings, using loans from one company to stave off another's debt. Maybe she knew, maybe she didn't. But the next day, Ghislaine jetted back to London, carrying the laundered share certificates. And the envelope? now containing the equivalent of $200 million of other people's money, found a new home. It was deposited in the bathroom safe of her father's penthouse office near his Valentino hand towels. Three decades later, it is still not clear where exactly most of the funds pilfered by Robert Maxwell went. We don't know if they were spent or hidden. Many of the stiffed employees never got all their money back. The luckiest only received about half of the value of their investment from government subsidies and settlements. To the outside observer, Ghislaine's role in her father's life appears to parallel her later role in Epstein's operation. After Robert Maxwell's death, she seamlessly moved on to Epstein, where prosecutors allege she again abetted criminal behavior on a similarly consequential scale. Despite the changing continents, in circumstances, in relationships, Ghislaine seems to have hardly changed at all. You've heard the next part of the story. A broken daddy's girl appears in New York and latches onto a man, Jeffrey Epstein, trading social entree for financial stability. She seemed like she was in a a horrific predicament. That's Christopher Mason. He's a journalist and TV host. Back when he met Ghislaine, he was a full-time entertainer and musical satirist. For Epstein's 40th birthday party, Ghislaine commissioned a song by him with some highly specific details. It included, Mason said, a line about schoolgirls with crushes on Epstein. Mason told us he first met Ghislaine in 1989 at a Manhattan nightclub called MK, which he described as the hottest place in the universe at the time. He said it was exactly the sort of place 
one would expect to find Ghislaine. Within minutes, he was wowed by her wit and worldliness. Ghislaine was completely delightful, very funny, highly intelligent, witty, hilarious, self-deprecating charm. The two Brits hit it off. A series of photos show them grinning together on the society circuit, Ghislaine typically dressed in garish designer clothing, Mason wearing his trademark bow tie. But after Ghislaine's father died and she moved to New York, it was a whole different ballgame. Mason recalled visiting Ghislaine at a drab Upper East Side apartment shortly after Robert Maxwell's death. And she spoke a lot about her father and that the family had suddenly lost all this money. So the scandal of her father was very much in the air at the time. Mason, being British, knew all about the case. Robert Maxwell's companies were being divvied up in bankruptcy. Ghislaine's older brothers, Kevin and Ian, who worked closely with their father, had been arrested on fraud charges, though they were later acquitted. And the family was going around talking about how broke they were. Ghislaine's mother, Betty Maxwell, told Vanity Fair in 1992 she had absolutely no savings to fall back on because she never for a minute believed her husband would leave her destitute. Kevin Maxwell had his assets frozen. The brothers would later declare personal bankruptcy. Kevin, twice. His 400 million pound bankruptcy in 1992 was then the UK's biggest. But somehow, Ghislaine was living the high life over in New York. Despite what she told friends, we know she had money coming in. News reports estimate she was getting around 100,000 pounds a year from a trust her father had set up in Liechtenstein. While members of her family were being arrested or hung out to dry, Ghislaine Maxwell was cementing her status in the New York social scene and receiving the equivalent of nearly $180,000 a year. Mason doesn't remember when he first heard that Ghislaine was dating Epstein, though he can place it within six months of her father's death. Epstein just sort of appeared. He was suddenly, you know, jumping on planes, jumping on yachts. As for how they met, many people believe a backstory that feels ripped from an Edith Wharton novel. That penniless British socialite linked up with a coarse American to continue leading the sort of life to which she'd become accustomed. The problem with that story? It's an excuse. It implies she had to put up with Epstein's sickness because she was broke. Yet multiple people have told us that Ghislaine and Jeffrey actually met through her father, Robert Maxwell, years before his death. That connection recasts everything we think we know about Ghislaine. That's next, after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Robert Maxwell, it is said, was very controlling of Ghislaine's love life. She was not allowed to bring boyfriends home from Oxford, and any suitors were considered by her father to be after his money. Yet Maxwell, these people say, introduced the couple, 
possibly as early as 1988, so that Ghislaine would have Epstein's emotional backing. If this is true, then the power dynamic between them shifts significantly. Perhaps she was the boss, and Epstein did her bidding. Or, at the very least, they may have been equals. What we do know is that Ghislaine was not adrift when she met Epstein. She was the daughter of one of Britain's richest men, at the peak of his power. Chronologically, geographically, the idea that Robert Maxwell set his daughter up with Epstein makes sense. Epstein and Robert Maxwell both had offices at the same address, the historic Helmsley Palace Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. I talked to Stephen Hoffenberg, a convicted Ponzi schemer who worked with Epstein in the 80s. He told me he remembers hearing Ghislaine's name for the first time around 1988. He said Epstein told him he met Ghislaine abroad at a function related to Robert Maxwell's vast holdings. Hoffenberg says Epstein got that invitation because Epstein and Robert Maxwell did business together, though we haven't been able to verify that. A friend who socialized with Ghislaine and Jeffrey said this too, that the pair met in London through Robert Maxwell. But, that person said, Ghislaine wasn't interested in Epstein until after her father died. A former Epstein staffer I spoke with said they too had been told by Ghislaine that her father introduced her to Jeffrey. Though Ghislaine shared this bit of information during a particularly bizarre encounter. This staffer told me about an unsettling visit to Ghislaine's apartment. Maxwell had pulled out a photo album and was forcing this employee to look at old family photos, but not nostalgic, heartwarming pictures. The photos were from Robert Maxwell's funeral. The staffer said they became more and more depressed as Ghislaine poured through eight photo albums. By the end of the dreary episode, they said they were ready to jump off a bridge. All they could do was sit there listlessly as Ghislaine rhapsodized about her father and his funeral in Israel. It was something of an event, held in the historic Mount of Olives Cemetery, attended by both Israel's then-sitting prime minister and president. It was during this morbid show-and-tell that Ghislaine dropped a significant piece of information. Out of the blue, Ghislaine told this person her dad actually connected her with Epstein. She said the idea was that Epstein was someone who could take care of her emotionally, not financially. Ghislaine was very clear on that last point. In addition to these accounts, there's also a photo, snapped a mere 19 days after Robert Maxwell's death, that intimately links Epstein and Ghislaine. Shot at the Plaza Hotel during a memorial event for Robert Maxwell, the picture shows Ghislaine and Epstein in conversation. Wearing a blue silk jacket, Ghislaine smiles coyly at Epstein, who is seated to her right, wearing a white bow tie and an enormous grin. It doesn't look like a first date. The origins of Epstein's wealth remain steeped in mystery. By the accounts of people who knew Epstein, the riches came suddenly. If you listened to last week's episode, Epstein's former houseman, Juan Alessi, described it this way. Jeffrey was a normal guy. He didn't have the money. That money came like that. That wealth? Juan told us it materialized around 1991 or 1992, which is also when he started seeing Ghislaine all the time. 
there is a small hint as to the possible seed of Epstein's fortune, buried in court papers from 2010. The hint comes from Maritza Vasquez, a bookkeeper who worked for Karen Models, an agency in which Epstein had invested. Vasquez was being deposed as part of a civil lawsuit against Epstein in Florida. In her sworn testimony, Vasquez says she was told Robert Maxwell started Epstein's money. She specifically used the word started. Vasquez says another employee told her Epstein had a relationship with a woman, that her father was very wealthy, and that's how he started his own money. It's not exactly clear what that statement means. It's a few lines in the deposition, and that's it. Vasquez clarifies she's talking about Ghislaine and Robert Maxwell, and the questioning moves on. We might never know for sure if Robert Maxwell, and subsequently Ghislaine Maxwell, used Jeffrey Epstein to hide or launder money. But there are a few things we can say with certainty. Ghislaine was very close with two men who hid money behind a network of companies. Ghislaine actively participated in both of their operations, reportedly transporting shares for her father and working for Epstein's shady entities by her own admission. Ghislaine is also inexplicably wealthy, with prosecutors saying she had at least $20 million at the time of her arrest. Epstein's known assets totaled just under $578 million at the time of his death. And the money Robert Maxwell stole, the 2020 equivalent of around $590 million, it's still missing. In all of this, survivors insist Ghislaine was not the unwitting accomplice. She was an adult, almost 30, when she met Epstein. She was the driver, the force. Ghislaine didn't just allegedly bring Epstein girls to abuse. She brought him legitimacy in all areas of his life. When they first met, Epstein didn't have islands. He didn't even pay rent. In the late 80s, Epstein was reportedly living in a one-bedroom apartment on 66th Street, which cost $0 a month due to a rent strike. He was pretending he lived in the penthouse by hosting parties on the roof and having a deli deliver. But Ghislaine's connections opened doors for him and made everything Epstein was pretending to have a reality. Once she arrived, they began to mold his new persona. He acquired property. The Palm Beach House in 1990, the Upper East Side Mansion in Zorro Ranch in New Mexico in the mid-90s. Next, the apartment in Paris. Then, the first Caribbean island in 98, followed by another larger island in 2016. She ran his households, planned the parties, and crucially, helped hide his depravities. Ghislaine worked tirelessly to launder Epstein's reputation, his mannerisms, that near-constant sneer. Her presence made his ascension through the ranks of money, of power, possible. We've spoken with many people who knew the pair, and they all say Epstein simply didn't have the social graces, the bewitching quality that Ghislaine had. She carried him. Without her, Epstein was just an arrogant chump. Even on Ghislaine's arm, Christopher Mason said Epstein still left a bad taste in his mouth. He had this permanent, self-satisfied sneer going on. He didn't seem to care about people, to value anyone else, unless he thought they could do something for him. Jeffrey seemed to be interested only in persons of um, staggering consequence. And by staggering consequence, 
Mason means Epstein was only interested in the exceedingly wealthy. Epstein and Ghislaine were an odd match, notably affectionless in front of others. Mason doesn't recall them ever holding hands or whispering sweet nothings. But in the early 1990s, they were a team. She got the party invites. They both attended. All the while, she paved over Epstein's shortcomings with her charisma and magnetism. As Mason puts it, she had all the charm to make up for him. Back then, he knew Ghislaine pretty well. He went to parties and dinners with her, even socialized in her home. There were little wisps of strange things he heard that didn't seem like much at the time. But looking back now, they feel much more significant, like sinister clues. One of those clues came early on, at a party Ghislaine held for her mother, Betty. The party was in 1992 or 1993. It was at a townhouse Epstein was renting at the time, though Mason doesn't remember seeing Epstein there. This wasn't the 40-room mansion you've probably heard about. It was a townhouse on East 69th Street that he was renting from the State Department. The party was sort of a renaissance for the widow. Her daughter wanted to gently guide her mother back into society after the scandal that had plagued the family. Ghislaine invited her closest friends, Mason said. He doesn't remember if it was a tea party or a cocktail party, but it was at this party, in this house with a marble foyer and 19th century chandeliers, that another scandal reared its head. I did hear these strange rumors at that party about Ghislaine and Jeffrey. The rumor was going around at that party that Jeffrey liked schoolgirls and that Ghislaine was introducing him to schoolgirls. Rumors in 1992 or 1993 that Jeffrey Epstein liked schoolgirls and that Ghislaine Maxwell was helping him find them. Although in that moment, Mason said it just felt like amusing gossip. His mind didn't go anywhere sinister. I was imagining that he liked 18 or 19-year-old girls and maybe that he had crushes on them, but there was no sense of anything depraved going on. This is more than a decade before Jeffrey Epstein was charged in Palm Beach. More than two decades before he was charged in New York. And almost three decades before Ghislaine was arrested. These people, dressed in smoking jackets and cocktail dresses, sipping chartreuse and champagne, or eating tiny sandwiches, they heard this rumor back in the 90s. And many of them did hear it, because it was making the rounds at this party for Ghislaine's elderly mother. I talked to one person who told me about it, moved around to the room, um, getting myself a drink at the bar, and two or three other people came up and told me and said, have you heard this, ru- this rumor about Ghislaine? Mason said he never spoke to Ghislaine about the rumor, never brought it up, even though, in his words, it was just something that lots of people who knew Ghislaine well knew about her. At the time, it seemed all very innocent and, and harmless. It seemed like a sort of mildly titillating and not at all sinister then. In retrospect, Mason is able to view the rumor as horrifying. But back then, no one questioned it. And with no prying eyes, no questions, they were able to operate 
in plain sight. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Jeffrey Epstein was a predator before he met Colleen. A series of recently filed lawsuits against his estate have made that very clear. A lawsuit filed in August places his earliest alleged assault in 1978, when he'd just transitioned from teaching at Dalton to trading at Bear Stearns. His victim? A 13-year-old. He struck again in 1984 and then again in 1987. But he was just your everyday monster. Like most sexual predators, he was only able to strike every couple years when everything lined up. But with Ghislaine, he was able to evolve from someone who struck intermittently into a full-fledged sexual predator with an international recruitment machine. With Ghislaine, he was able to become one of the most prolific child predators known. Ghislaine's arrival coincides with an explosion of accusations against Jeffrey Epstein. More than 20 lawsuits have now been filed against Jeffrey Epstein's estate. Ghislaine is named, either in passing or as a defendant, in at least seven of them. She is variously accused of either facilitating or taking part in sexual abuse. Through lawyers, she has repeatedly denied any wrongdoing. Lawsuits, along with victim and eyewitness accounts, lay out the bare bones of the recruitment and grooming operation prosecutors say was underway in the 1990s. It wasn't yet a slickly orchestrated operation. Back in the 90s, it was Ghislaine Maxwell, in the flesh, literally trawling the streets of Manhattan for girls. Maria Farmer saw this firsthand during her time working for Ghislaine and Epstein. She saw it in the car as Ghislaine hunted children, and she saw it from the front desk, where she later signed them in. Like, who would think that this woman would be a British witch? You know what I mean? She looks so nice. They'd methodically drive the same streets doing the same thing. I've seen her go, like, drive up past Central Park and pull around, tell the driver, stop the car. And she would jump out. And then I would see uh, her give, like, a phone number. So she'd, like, take a sheet of paper, write down her number, give it to the kid. You know, and she'd be charming them the whole time. Everybody always loved her because she seemed so trustworthy. These would have been young, insecure teenagers, bowled over by a well-dressed, posh British woman jumping out of a car just to tell them they had what it took to be a model. It was pretty wild, the way she would run out and get people. But it was constant. And these teen girls? They showed up. I did recognize a girl, you know, in the park when I was with, in the car waiting. I recognized that girl the next day when she came in to audition for modeling, she said. She seemed excited because she was getting ready to model. 
or, you know, to audition. She was really excited. Maria doesn't remember what happened to that particular girl after this audition. Doesn't remember seeing her leave. But she does recall others. They only came once. A couple of them left crying. Um, I don't remember seeing ever anyone return. Ever. The charges against Ghislaine suggest prosecutors are focusing their attention on Ghislaine's role as a recruiter, the things she did leading up to the alleged abuse, her grooming, her intent, not on her purported involvement in the sexual abuse itself. We know the three victims were between the ages of 14 and 18, and the alleged abuse occurred in New York, Florida, New Mexico, and London. Maria worked for Epstein and Ghislaine smack in the middle of those years of Ghislaine's charged conduct. She had a clear view of what their operation looked like during those years. Maria saw individual recruiting by Ghislaine, but she didn't just see it from her desk. Maria's younger sister, Annie Farmer, accuses Ghislaine and Epstein of grooming and sexual abuse in a lawsuit filed against his estate earlier this year. Not long after Maria began working for Epstein and Ghislaine, she mentioned her younger sister, Annie. And Epstein and Ghislaine quickly showed interest, asking questions, learning about Annie's ambitions. Maria details their inquiries about Annie in her own lawsuit against the estate. Epstein latched onto Annie's dreams of going to college, Annie's lawsuit claims, quickly offering financial help. But he needed to meet her. Why not come to New York? Annie didn't need a parent, of course. Her sister would be with her. The trip to New York Annie describes in her lawsuit had all the hallmarks of grooming other victims have described. Shopping, trips to the theater, movies. Maria didn't see that this was Epstein's chance to start poking at Annie's boundaries, taking Annie's hand at the movies, touching her arm in the shadows. Nothing that would make her run away, especially since this was her sister's boss. Maria was unaware of what was happening to Annie. She saw the attention heaped on her sister, but she didn't see where it was leading. The trip to New York had been a success, so the next invitation was an easier sell, a trip to Epstein's ranch in New Mexico. Annie's lawsuit says that Epstein called her mother, pitching an educational trip for high school students he claimed to be sponsoring. No parents needed, of course, and no Maria this time. The lawsuit says Epstein insisted Annie's mother shouldn't worry. Ghislaine would be there. Ghislaine would chaperone. And yet, When Annie arrived, it was just her, no other students. Alone on a 10,000-acre ranch with Ghislaine and Epstein, the court papers say. She didn't see what had happened, that these people who'd been strangers mere months before had lured her into a trap. And Maria remained unaware that her sister had been isolated without anyone to call for help. Again, they went shopping, this time for a new pair of cowboy boots. Again, they went to the movies, where the lawsuit says Ghislaine pantsed Epstein in line, pulling down his sweatpants to show Annie his bare butt. And it was on this trip to New Mexico, in 1996, that Annie accuses Ghislaine and Epstein of assaulting her. Annie Farmer is one of only a small handful of women who have publicly described an assault during this narrow window of time identified by New York prosecutors. She's also one of the three victims Ghislaine is accused by prosecutors of grooming for abuse by Epstein. Two other now-grown women have accused Epstein and Ghislaine of targeting them during this time period. One is Melissa Solomon, 
who spoke about her experience last season. Another is an unnamed plaintiff in a lawsuit filed earlier this year. They both describe eerily similar experiences with Ghislaine and Epstein. The same pattern of grooming. Ghislaine was Epstein's first and probably best recruiter. But as the operation grew, Ghislaine allegedly trained other people to bring in new girls. Virginia Roberts Jouffre says she witnessed all of this firsthand. She says Ghislaine saw herself as the master at the game, with a sick pride in her innate ability to see victims' vulnerabilities. As you heard in our last episode, Virginia was recruited by Ghislaine when she was working at Mar-a-Lago. Over the years, Virginia says she saw Ghislaine reel in dozens of other girls the exact same way she ensnared Virginia in Palm Beach, by asking lots of questions and making lots of promises. She had a knack for it. She would be able to figure out what it was that possible victim wanted or needed. And because she looked like a nice Mary Poppins figure, you kind of trusted her. Virginia says Ghislaine tried to teach her how to recruit girls for Epstein, but Ghislaine didn't think Virginia was very good at it. During a trip to Paris, Ghislaine told her, She's like, I just can't believe how bad you are at it. I'm going to go show you. Pick a girl for me. Pick any girl in the square. And, uh, you know, a pretty orange orange hair girl walked past, and she goes, okay, I'm going to go up to her, and you see, you watch. We're going to have her over tonight. And sure enough, that girl was at the hotel in Paris that night. Virginia says she never saw any remorse in Ghislaine. Recruitment was treated as pure sport. Ghislaine was, like, so proud of herself because, you know, she obviously proved to me that I'm really shitty at procuring girls and she's amazing at it. There was no sorrow or even, like, you know, you're doing something wrong and you shouldn't do it. There was nothing like that. It was just a game to her. But Ghislaine's arrogance would be her downfall. We don't know when, how, or why Ghislaine moved on from Epstein. Virginia thinks she left because things were getting too messy after Epstein's arrest in Palm Beach. So if she caught wind that there was trouble, Ghislaine only cares about one person, and that's Ghislaine. So she would have backed away quite quickly. Virginia says the last time she actually talked to Ghislaine was back in 2007, after Epstein's arrest. At that point, It had been five years since Virginia escaped Epstein. When she settled in Australia, she purposefully got an unlisted phone number because she was terrified of them finding her. But Ghislaine tracked her down anyway. Virginia was shocked when she picked up the phone and heard Ghislaine's voice. She found me, and um, she just acted like we were good old pals. And it was like, how's life? How is everybody doing? And, you know, I was pregnant with my my second child, and, like, I'm surprised my water didn't just break right there. But, of course, Ghislaine had a motive. She just wanted to know more about what I was up to, and she also wanted to know if I was going to be talking to any investigators. Um, And she was just like, I can't believe this 
Jeffrey's being investigated after everything he's done for, you know, all the girls and uh, it's just ridiculous. So as long as you don't say anything, everything's fine. And, uh, and if you need, you know, legal help, we're here to help you. This was one of Epstein's tactics. Anytime investigators came calling, lawyers appeared to offer their services on Epstein's dime. And I was like, I just want to be left alone. I've just started a new life. And I think that kind of cut her short and let her realize, like, you're not my friend. You, you never were my friend. And don't, don't call me again. Ghislaine's own court filings offer a range of when she allegedly stopped working for Epstein. One doc says 2006. Another says 2009. In any event, after she left, whenever she left... She did shockingly well. Her time with a convicted sex offender didn't seem to cramp her style or public perception of her. A steady stream of society pics show her attending parties, charity events, everything under the sun. A few years later, she even attended Chelsea Clinton's wedding as the guest of her then-boyfriend, billionaire tech entrepreneur Ted Waite. Ghislaine was, at heart, a socialite. And like any good socialite, She also found time for philanthropic causes. Her ocean charity, the Terramar Project, materialized in 2012. Terramar brought her to the United Nations just one year later. After Epstein's arrest and conviction and her known association with him, she was literally invited, honored, at the UN for this vague ocean charity. Later that year, Terramar took her to a conference in Iceland. It's here that she met Scott Borgerson, a tech company CEO and former Coast Guard officer. He divorced his wife, and Borgerson and Ghislaine shacked up together on a sprawling $3 million estate in Manchester-by-the-Sea, just north of Boston. But in 2015, her new world, her second reinvention, started crumbling around her. Allegations against Ghislaine had been quietly building since 2009, as Epstein's victims sued him, sued the government, and implicated her in their abuse. And then, in December 2014, Virginia filed bombshell court papers. They were part of a lawsuit that wasn't against Ghislaine, not even against Epstein, but they did contain some explosive allegations. It was in those documents that Virginia's most shocking claim yet emerged, that Ghislaine had forced Virginia to have sex with her old pal, Britain's Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew has categorically denied having sex with her. It was incidents like this that made Virginia feel that she was disposable to Ghislaine. All the girls that she brought in for Jeffrey Epstein's pleasure and for the purpose of sex trafficking, we were just fillers. We weren't even human in her eyes. We were just... Uh, I wouldn't even go as far to say, like, items that she could easily pass around. You know, we didn't have a soul. We didn't have a story. She could care less about who we were, what, what had happened to us in the past, as long as it benefited her. And Ghislaine's second act? It all came crashing down. Press coverage exploded and Ghislaine's name was splashed across the front pages of papers across the globe. In response to Virginia's allegations, Ghislaine issued a statement through a spokesperson, saying Virginia's statements against Ghislaine Maxwell 
are untrue, and that Virginia's claims are obvious lies. In response, Virginia sued her for defamation. She hadn't been able to previously sue for the abuse because the statute of limitations had run out. So the only way that I could sue Gillen was when she came out and called me a liar. And it was some form of accountability because she had to put her cards uh, on the table, and so did I. The lawsuit, filed in September 2015, kicked off a brutal, years-long battle as lawyers with the top firms in the country tried to legally slaughter one another. Depositions, subpoenas, motions, thousands and thousands of pages of maneuvering. Virginia just wanted justice. Well, I really wanted to hold her accountable. Her lawyers deposed the inner circle of the sex trafficking operation. Jeffrey Epstein, Nadia Marcinkova, Sarah Kellen, all pleaded the fifth, invoking their right to not incriminate themselves. But Ghislaine didn't. She talked about how ridiculous it was that she was being sued. Virginia said Ghislaine was offended that she had to answer to someone who was so beneath her. It's just too much because we're all way too low for her. Why are we even bothering her? We're like a bee in her face, you know? And that's how she felt about it. Um, I don't think she ever knew that it was gonna lead to this. It didn't stop. The filings continued. Suddenly presidents were involved. Headlines blared that Bill Clinton had ridden on Epstein's jet, the so-called Lolita Express, multiple times. Papers chronicled a lawsuit against Donald Trump for allegedly raping a teenager with Epstein a claim he voraciously denied before the lawsuit was dropped. This, for the first time, it was it was all over the news. It was, you know, Jeffrey's henchman and uh, right-hand man um, who happens to be a woman. And yeah, I think her life changed dramatically um, in the sense that this was becoming real and she wasn't so much on top of the pedestal as she thought she was. Ghislaine Maxwell was no longer welcome on the social circuit. No one wants their picture taken with a child sex trafficker. She was followed on the streets by reporters. Life as she knew it changed. After I sued her and during my lawsuit with her, other victims came forward and said, well, me too, and me too, and me too. And and there was a lot of us. And so she realized we're not going away anytime soon. Emails from 2015 show Ghislaine was still in touch with Epstein as they tried to maneuver this new, ever-mounting obstacle together. In the email, Ghislaine begs Epstein to instruct another former girlfriend to speak out, hoping it'll take the heat off her. Epstein, meanwhile, sends back talking points about how Ghislaine should respond to Virginia's allegations. Epstein wrote, You have done nothing wrong, and I would urge you to start acting like it. Go outside, head high, not as an escaping convict. Go to parties. Deal with it. The reason that we have this email, that we know as much as we do, is because of Virginia's defamation lawsuit against Ghislaine. These last five years of litigation haven't been easy for Virginia, and things won't get any easier for a while. She's received credible threats on her life, cryptic calls from the FBI, in addition to the ceaseless torrent of hate from the internet. Intimidation, it's a huge part of what I go through, but somebody's got to do it, right? You know, somebody's got to clean up the garbage. Not everybody grows up and wants to be a garbage man, but that's what I feel like. I feel like I'm a garbage man, and I'm just trying to clean up the garbage. 
In November 2019, a man and woman wound their way up the driveway of a lavish $1 million estate in the small town of Bradford, New Hampshire. Tucked away from the road with sprawling lawns and tall trees, the couple explained to the real estate agent they were looking for solitude. The man, Scott Marshall, said he was retired from the British military and working on a book. The woman, Janet Marshall, said she was a journalist seeking privacy. In their British accents, they told the agent they wanted to buy quickly and would set up an LLC. Granite LLC quickly purchased the house in cash, and Janet Marshall moved in. But Janet Marshall was not a journalist. She was Ghislaine Maxwell, attempting to hide from journalists. Ghislaine managed to hide for a year following Epstein's arrest. And then, her under-the-radar life came to a swift end. Welcome back to CBS This Morning. The woman accused of helping alleged sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein recruit and abuse underage girls is in jail this morning. FBI agents arrested Ghislaine Maxwell yesterday, nearly one year to the day after Epstein was arrested. She was taken into custody, refused bail. And after so much smoke and mirrors about her whereabouts during her seclusion, prosecutors finally gave us some concrete details. And those details are wild. Prosecutors told the judge Ghislaine was married, though whom she married remains a secret. I've spent a long time trying to figure out who this might be, but there are too many counties, too many countries, and too many bureaucratic roadblocks. The government also revealed Ghislaine had at least $20 million, but reported zero income. She'd had at least 15 bank accounts in the last four years alone. And the balance of those accounts had swung wildly as she transferred up to $500,000 at a time. She'd been on the move since Epstein's arrest. Ghislaine moved at least twice, they said, though they didn't say exactly where she'd been, just New England. She'd changed her email address, registered her primary phone number under the name GMAX, and ordered packages in another person's name. Prosecutors say Epstein and Maxwell were financially linked through at least 2011, laying out in court papers that between 2007 and 2011, the duo shuffled more than $20 million from an Epstein account to a Maxwell account back to an Epstein account. That's not all, though. When they arrested Ghislaine, FBI agents also found a cell phone wrapped in foil, sitting atop a desk. Prosecutors were successful in convincing the judge that Ghislaine should be detained pending trial. She is, after all, a citizen of the UK, the US, and France, which refuses to extradite its own citizens. Foil-wrapped cell phone aside, they hammered home not only that Ghislaine had the financial ability to live in hiding, she was good at it. Prosecutors pointed to the fact that she was a skilled liar, just as believable as Janet Marshall or her other known alias, Jennifer Elmax. Ever the chameleon, whatever identity she was trying to assume, she passed. Except with the victims. She didn't fool them. Ghislaine Maxwell grew up in a 51-room mansion in a leafy English suburb surrounded by finery. When things got dicey for her family in the UK, she fled to New York, where she settled into a five-story, 7,000-square-foot townhouse on the Upper East Side, then a mansion by the ocean in Massachusetts, followed by the gorgeous compound in New Hampshire, where she hid from the world. At the time of this broadcast, Ghislaine remains in a detention center in Brooklyn, awaiting trial. The facility, called the Metropolitan Detention Center, 
could kindly be described as one of the least hospitable places on the planet. It's in a different borough, but it's haunted by the same issues as the jail that held Epstein. Black mold, meager staffing, intolerable temperatures. Ghislaine has repeatedly complained that the conditions of her confinement are more severe than they are for other inmates, that she's under more surveillance, that her activities are more closely monitored. She was on suicide watch for a stint, even though her lawyers insist she was never suicidal. Ironically, the parts of incarceration that most bother her mirror the conditions she allegedly forced on Epstein's victims. Ghislaine is in custody because of the emotional labor of women like Virginia. Virginia, like others, says she spent years being manipulated by Ghislaine, monitored by Ghislaine, ordered around by Ghislaine, eating, sleeping, and talking only when Ghislaine said it was acceptable. Her and others were watched by hidden cameras. All of Ghislaine's movements, every step she takes in or out of her cell, are surveilled by cameras or another person. Even phone calls with her lawyers unfold under the same intense scrutiny. She has no cellmate, but she's never alone. She's watched 24-7 by cameras and by correctional officers or Bureau of Prisons psychologists. These people observe her constantly, writing down her every move. If you or someone you know is a victim of human trafficking, you can report it to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Their number is 888-373-7888. And you can also reach them by text. Just text 233-733. Broken Seeking Justice is produced by three Uncanny Four Productions. Our show is produced by Krista Ripple and Jennifer Siegel. I've reported this episode along with Tara Palmieri. Casey Holford composed our theme, and this episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Will Tavlin fact-checked this episode. Rachel B. Doyle is our editor. Our special correspondent and executive producer is Julie K. Brown. Our other executive producers are Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, Adam McKay, and Kevin Messick. For Broken, I'm Emily Saul. We'll be back next week.